From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 486, Incident Management with guest Jason Hand. Recorded Monday, July 25th, 2016. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. My guest today is Jason Hand, who is a DevOps evangelist at VictorOps, co-organizer of DevOps Days, Rockies, and the author of Chat Ops for Dummies, and a host of a number of DevOps-related meetups in Denver, Boulder, and the San Francisco area. Jason has spent the last 15 months presenting and giving workshops on a number of DevOps topics, such as blameless postmortems, chat ops, alerting, and the value of context with incident management. Welcome, sir. Hey, thanks. Good to be here. We got to put the term chat ops to bed. I've heard it before, but most people haven't. So what is chat ops? The sort of simplest definition that I've landed on recently for chat ops is uh, essentially just taking the conversations that we we have on a daily basis within our group chat um, tools and services. So things like HipChat, Slack, that kind of stuff. Um, but taking those conversations and juxtaposing those with context, as right. well as possibly even uh, actual commands from our daily work. So, for example, you know, if you're a developer and you're pushing code and you're using things like Git uh, or you know GitHub, perhaps when you push your code out into a a feature branch or something along those lines, uh, having it so that the information about that action can automatically show up within a group chat tool so that everybody has the same shared information, the same shared context. Uh, it just makes everybody a lot more aware of what's going on, helps to share that tribal knowledge. And then the same applies to when you can start to maybe leverage bots and, and do some more advanced things where you're actually running commands from within group chat. Suddenly, everybody's on the same page with what's happening, how things are getting done, what the results are, uh, and it's all being captured in real time. So there's a lot of different kind of byproduct benefits that come simply from just moving context and actions into the same space of where we're having these conversations daily. And there's a good bot for uh, GitHub and Slack, right? Like the, you don't have to do much once you plug that in. When a check-in happens, depending on what branch or, or the trunk that you're monitoring, that'll just appear. You'll, you'll get it just like that. Absolutely. And, and stuff like that doesn't even really um, currently require the use of a bot anymore because um, you know, both HipChat and Slack are, are kind of the mo- most popular group chat tools out there. And both of them have really great marketplaces where you can go in and, and there are native integrations for services like GitHub. Um, so all you got to do is go in and just uh, check off a couple boxes and put in your account information and you're good to go. So as soon as you as a developer or someone on your team or within your company takes action or makes an update or, or, you know, some sort of change to a branch or whatever it is you're interested in, that's, that is going to automatically just go back into group chat for everyone to know. So it's a really easy way to just kind of get everybody plugged in, to, you know, on the same page of what's going on. You know, I did this years ago at a company uh, that I was co-owner of called Strange Loop. We made an appliance for making websites go faster, but we used an IRC for that because lots of guys were remote. And so we had our own IRC server internally, and you were doing a lot of cut and pasting to dump into there. But there were two things I found incredibly valuable from those logs. 
One was it let people, non-technical people, watch a deploy, like just how much effort it took to update an appliance and watch its behavior and sort of deal with the issues. It's not like you just hit a button and everything's fine, right? It's a, it's a complicated process. That's absolutely correct. And you bring up a really good point that, you know, this whole concept of, regardless of if you're using a bot or not, but this whole concept of doing things within a shared communal space has been around for a while. You know, we've been using sure. IRC, just like you mentioned, for a number of years. I think I think there was a, a time there where a, a lot of folks in our industry, you know, were still, and they still are using IRC today in a lot of companies. Um, but we've moved away in many cases from those tools like IRC and into things where we're, just, we're using something like Google Gchat, where we're having instant messages or even Skype, where we're just sort of having one-off conversations here and there. They're not this this idea of a persistent, ongoing conversation. Right. And the main thing is that it's kept so you could get some value from it later, right? You can get back to it. Uh, I'm also uh, uh, doing some root cause analysis, like having the IRC journal or just whatever journaling tool that is of the moment an incident was detected, hey, we're having a problem with XYZ, and then the entire process to fix, just so you know, and, you know, the biggest things that come out when people have never looked at one of these before is like, it's 90% diagnosis, 10% treatment. Yeah. Like once you actually know what the problem is, fixing it is not that hard, but figuring out the problem is hard and showing that sort of truth to everybody, you know, really encourages things like instrumentation and, and just this ability to have a deeper understanding of what's going on in our systems. Yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned at the opening of the of the show, I, I'm at VictorOps, and VictorOps is all about on-call management, incident management, and that's really kind of the, the big reason why I talk so much about chat ops is because that type of responsibility, uh, the, you know, the, the typical on-call responsibility, this idea of, of chat ops and seeing the context about what, you know, not just what happened uh, or who was paged or who was alerted, but what did they do after that? You know, the, right. the whole, the entire incident uh, life cycle, really, there's like six phases. So it starts off with the alerting piece, you know, somebody gets paged about a problem, and then they have to begin triaging, and sort of understanding, maybe escalating things around. Uh, then you move into the investigation and the identification. Uh, and then you get into actually fixing things and then documenting. Them. And when you sort of take a chat ops approach, most of that's just sort of there uh, automatically. So right, like you mentioned, you know, there's a lot more to it than simply just fixing a problem. It's understanding what people are doing, you know, what kind of graphs should we go pull up and what types of logs should we be digging into and and maybe what kind of commands do I need to run to restart this service um, on a host that I'm not familiar with. So all kinds of information is just uh, immediately embedded in real time for people to go back and and look at whether that's during a you know post incident analysis like a post mortem or yep. if it's really more of just part of their continuous improvement plan where they go in and they review what what did we do um, during last night's incident because honestly uh, I thought that was going to be a huge deal and we fixed it in just a matter of minutes so that was kind of a big win let's go back and understand what we did really well too not just what went bad in all, in every case. Yeah, and it's funny developing good reflexes for firefighting too. Like rule number one is don't make it worse, right? It's just surprising how easy it is to go down paths where it's like, okay, well, we figured out what the original problem is, but all our attempts to fix it now are going to take twice as long to undo than the actual original problem. Yeah, yeah, you make a good point there. It's, it's, 
yeah, d- being able to really diagnose the system, understand what's going on, and just sort of dump that data. I don't know if you've encountered this, but certainly I see with experienced people, it's a sense of intuition, right? They just sort of, you know, that area over there was worked on this week. What do you bet? Yeah. And, and you tend to poke around based on last disturbed. Exactly. And, you know, that, that sense of intuition um, is really just our own familiarity with certain situations. Yes. You know, it's not like we have some sort of magical insight into how we fix things. It's just there's a piece of our, our cognition where it recognizes something that we saw previously or, or that we picked up, you know, just sort of reading back through conversations. Something clicks within us and, we're, and we kind of have this what we call intuition about, oh, I know exactly what to do in this situation, or I at least know where to poke around and, and try some different things. So having that, that sense of, you know, that awareness of what's going on, even if it's not actions that you yourself are taking, suddenly you just contain more information in your mind about what types of actions need to be done under certain circumstances. Sure. Yeah. There's also a valid point that if you don't immediately recognize a problem, go look at stuff you don't normally understand. <laughs> because if it was areas you understood, you'll immediately recognize the problem, know what to do. So you go right to the stuff you don't know because it's doing something you didn't expect. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say right in your uh, bio, this concept of blameless postmortems. Is this still really a problem? Yeah, you know, it, it, it kind of depends on who you talk to. So a lot of the people in sort of the uh, DevOps community, we'll call it, you know, the people that have been uh, familiar with this, these principles and these concepts and been talking about them for the past six or seven years, they don't need to use the word blameless or blame aware or anything like that. It's just become part of their of their process when they do these post-incident analysis. But I think for a large swath of the industry, you know, if we just kind of lump it together in, in terms of the software industry or the, the IT industry, they don't still do postmortem or, or post-incident analysis at all. And so that concept is still sort of new to them. And when they go in there, there's in many cases, um, and unfortunately, it, it's come sometimes comes down from the top, you know, the management and that type of thing. Um, but they want to come in and, and they want to find someone to uh, assign um I don't always want to say blame, but they want to know, you know, who, who do I need to talk to about this or, right. or who do I need to maybe reprimand or, or, or do we need to let somebody go or those types of things. So they have a very different mindset about how we address learning from failure. And so I think, yeah, there's myself and there's lots of other, other people out there who are still kind of beating the drum on this blameless culture. Um, because there's so many companies out there, so many parts, so many different industries who are still of the mindset that, Heads will roll when when something goes wrong. They don't embrace failure. They don't look for areas to incrementally improve and become a learning organization. They just want to find a root cause, remove that from the picture, and then move on. As if getting rid of the guy who did the firefight yes. would actually make the situation better. Right. And actually, that makes it so much more worse. Because if you've got an engineer who has been with you for a while, and they've been trained, and they know the nuance of your your environment, and they know how things work, but they made a mistake, you know, that anybody could have made, you've suddenly just let go an engineer who learned a very important lesson. And now you're going to bring in somebody new that you have to onboard, you have to get them up to speed. And there's a high likelihood that they're going to make the exact same mistake. Sure. And, and you didn't, you effectively unlearned from that. 
Yeah. So, yeah, it is, it is kind of madness. And you, you see industries like the airline industry and so forth that, that really do take this seriously, that the, that's why their safety records are as good as they are, because everybody's open in conversation of what may have happened. And, uh, you get to a root cause, you make fixes where they make sense, and then you move on. Yeah. The airline industry is actually a really good example. Um, there's a book out there called Black Box Thinking which uh, actually makes a really great effort to point out how good the airline industry is. And then in contrast, how poor the healthcare industry is when it comes right. to learning from failure and how both of them have split off in terms of how they've just improved over time. I mean, the, the airline industry has, has made great strides in, in becoming a safer way to travel and, and just, you know, it's, e- it's becoming easier and easier to book flights and, you know, the whole thing, whereas healthcare has really s- sort of struggled to improve over time. And a lot of that has to do with their lack of that blameless culture and actually focusing more on what can we learn from failure or learn from even success, too, rather than just pointing fingers, looking for just a root cause, you know, simply just trying to do the whole five whys analysis and then feel like we've solved the problem. A lot of people in our industry, we've actually moved away from uh, even the term of root cause because within complex systems, there's always going to be a lot of stuff going on. You know, system thinking has sort of shed light on it that there's rarely going to be a one single thing that broke or failed or anything like that. But even let's say that you did find a root cause if you just put in a corrective action and then fix that one thing that broke, all you did was put everything back to the way it was. And that's not yeah. really how you, know, you can't really stay ahead of your you know, competition or, or be market leaders if you're just going to always put things back the way they were. You actually have to have a different mindset of, well, let's let's kind of stop with this whole root cause thing. And let's actually look for different ways to improve the system so that when something like this happens again, it has a lower impact to our end users or we can recover from it a lot quicker because that's actually going to make strides to make us just better in general rather than just being a checkbox for some upper management that we did a root cause analysis. We've identified what the root problem was and we put in a corrective action and then we moved on with our day. Um, And that's, I think that speaks to, the, the web operations sort of industry, you know, the, the folks out there that we refer to as unicorns like Netflix and that Etsy and Amazon and all them. Sure. That's how a big reason how they've become who they are is because they, they recognize that there's a lot of contributing factors when you look at our systems and the things that are going on. And, and rarely is there going to be a, an exact uh, one-to-one uh, connection on problems and failures. And so... If we can kind of get more and more people in, in larger organizations to think that way as well, I think we'll see, uh, like we have with the airline industry, I think we'll see a lot of improvements and a lot of advancements. Um, but it's going to take a different way of thinking. You know, we've been ingrained and in, in taught that um, when something breaks and something goes wrong, we we seek out that root cause, we fix it, and then we move on. And that's, you know, that's just not going to really cut it. It's not enough. Uh, Give me one second to pay the bills here, Jason, because in the aftermath of data breaches, the public is often told we couldn't have seen it coming. But in a lot of cases, that's just not true. Over 80% of breaches have their root in misconfiguration, whether it be a firewall rule, server setting, open port, or third-party service. UpGuard is a premier system of record for IT configurations, no matter the platform, pinpointing anomalies and surfacing unauthorized changes in critical systems around the world. See how it works and get a live, customized demo at UpGuard.com slash RunAsRadio. You know, it's funny, uh, as, a, as an avid follower of the airline industry, because I fly a lot, 
that blameless system is actually under attack too. You know, they're, they're trying to litigate around that. They're threatening to start suing maintenance men and pilots and so forth over certain cases saying that, you know, that's the only way this thing will get better. And, and, and the, you know, the experts in the industry are like, uh, we've pretty much demonstrated exactly the opposite. That's why things are as good as they are. Yeah, to navigate the, the sort of litigation aspects of um, the airline industry, when something really bad goes wrong, uh, that would be a really uncomfortable place to be in. Because we, like you said, the experts and everybody out there has seen that this does work. Yes. And then there's there's always somebody who comes along and says, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. Or that's not the way, you know, Things work around here, um, but you know, it takes the companies and uh, you know that again the unicorns of the industry to step up and say, "Well, it's interesting you think that because we've been doing the exact opposite and it's been working really well." Whereas you've been sticking to your old guns and you're not seeing any advancement at all. You know, I'm kind of amazed that we haven't seen more litigation in technology. That companies haven't sued IT firms or uh, customers or anything like that for the amount of grief that that bad software can cause. Yeah, it, I think it happens, but um, I don't know if you feel the same way, but something I'm noticing over the past um, definitely five years or so is, um, you know, we've gotten so used to the SLAs, the service level agreements. Um, and I think people can often use that as a, as a leveraging point to, to litigate and to sue different companies. You know, they didn't adhere to their service level agreement. But honestly, because of the way um, sort of technology has advanced and it's become much more complex and we're beginning to understand how complex it is and how you can never really um, engineer failure out. You can only sort of prepare yourself to be able to address it uh, or detect it and repair it quickly. Even things like service level agreements are starting to go to the wayside because they're just too difficult to really prove what, you know, who's at fault or, or is there even anybody at fault or is this just part of a, uh, the natural complex system is that things are just going to break. And so there's, you know, if you think about a service level agreement, if, if I've got a, a service level agreement with some, you know, some provider out there, some service, and suddenly, you know, I'm on their website and I'm trying to do what I need to do, and suddenly that website is no longer working, um, how do I know what the problem is? Sure. Is it, is it something with their service or is it something with my internet provider? Is it something with my computer? There's so many possible contributing factors that it is, it is almost impossible to actually identify a single cause of a problem. And therefore, it, it seems to be in most cases, at least in our industry, um, very difficult, if not impossible, to actually identify who's at fault for something. Well, generally speaking, you blame the internet. That's sort of your safe blamer. Go take a walk or go get some coffee or something. But, um, but of course, you know, when you're talking about things like the airline industry and even, you know, the, the healthcare industry, when there are problems, when there are failures, you know, it's a much bigger deal. Their lives are at stake. It's not quite the same as us not being able to go in and send out a tweet. Right. Other things that are involved that are much more serious. Yeah. As soon as lives are on the line, you know, that that whole model shifts a fair bit. It's absolutely apparent. Yeah. The fact that you couldn't order some baseball tickets isn't going to kill anybody. You know, it's, it's going to be okay one way or the other. But software is becoming more and more prevalent in all these crucial systems, too. So I think we do have some pressure on us. To be better. Yeah, I was just reading this morning. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, SRE Weekly 
um, sort of weekly magazine or weekly kind of zine that comes out every week. But uh, they go through and they talk about, um, mm-hmm. well, first of all, they, they include a lot of different articles that have come up over the last week that sort of uh, are related to incident management and site, reliab- site reliability engineering, that kind of thing. And uh, I guess this past week, the National Weather Service had a significant outage and they were they were talking about how that actually impacts uh, the safety of people and, and lives and that kind of thing. And it's, you know, that's, that's a much bigger deal than, like you said, you know, trying to buy your, your baseball tickets or your concert tickets or, you know, anything like that. So I, I do talk about the blameless culture and how, how it's made huge, huge impact and, and strides, but, you know, make myself sound naive in that I don't realize that it depends on the industry. You can't necessarily go in with a complete blameless mindset if you're talking about, some terrible, terrible accident where people have been injured or worse. Um, you do have to sort of think about it slightly different, but, but still take some of the same concepts that it's, it's not so much the blame, uh, blameless or blame aware that we're really focused on. We're just, we're here to understand what went wrong and what, we, what were our efforts to try to repair from that or recover from that? And then how can we improve moving forward? And that's sort of the main thing is that we're here to learn. And I, I think there's, you know, there's been a movement with even within our industry to even move away from the, the term blameless postmortems or blame aware postmortems because people kind of get stuck and they get hooked in on this idea of, of blameless. And we're really not, you know, that's not the point. We're just here to learn and see what we can do to make things better moving forward. Because there's also an element here just focusing purely on, you know, IT operations folks is there are folks that are not performing up to standard inside of the organization. Like if it's a known set of problems and you keep repeating those problems over and over again, and I mean, at some point you probably should lose your job. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's not a free pass to just be, you know, be able to make mistakes all the time. Um, but it, that type of thing, I think, you know, especially if you go into a, some sort of post-incident analysis and you see, you know, Jason's made this mistake before. He didn't learn from anything and we didn't change the system in, in any way to prevent him from making this mistake again, you know, conversations have to be had. Of course, it doesn't sort of protect you from making mistakes and not losing your job. But at the same time, removing this fear that I may lose my job because I made a mistake, suddenly I'm more interested in actually sharing exactly what happened and, and, and sure. sharing exactly what I did. Because if I feel like I might lose my job, I become really, really good at not disclosing everything that happened. And that, and that's the problem right there is that we, if we don't disclose everything that happened, if we don't really put everything out on the table, then we don't know the full picture and we don't know where we can actually look for places to improve. And so if individuals feel like there's no repercussion for them to, um, be in trouble or lose their job or whatever, suddenly all of the facts can come out. And, and that's really the, the point of it. But that doesn't mean that, you know, people can't still be reprimanded or lose their jobs if they're continuous parts of, you know, the, the problem or whatever. I mean, it makes sense to me that we would have a, you know, you do that initial analysis and say, okay, well, obviously this method, you know, the way we're operating this is risky and, and be more careful next time is not a good strategy. So maybe you implement something in the system to make it a little more reliable, a little safer. And even if it does fail again, as long as it failed in a different way, we've learned something. It, it just concerns me when folks hide behind the blameless culture to not get better themselves. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a excellent point. And like you said, the thing that we want to look for is if I was to make a mistake because I typed something in incorrectly at a command line, you could have done that just as easily as, as me. Anybody could have done that just as easily as me. So that's where we want to understand, you know, what was it that Jason typed in from his command line? 
that caused this problem. And of course, now Jason and everybody else knows, hey, don't do that. But also, let's put something in place so that the system itself can protect this from happening. So maybe if Jason moves on to a different role or he leaves the company or whatever the case is, we've improved our systems. But at the same time, I, I need to be able to, to understand that I need to improve as well. And I think I, I now have because I know what the result is of making that mistake. Yeah. Fank, fat fingering something is a reality for everybody. So if you're going to, if you're going to kill someone because you fat fingered on a keyboard, we need to improve a system. Absolutely. Yeah. Every company out there, there's something, there's something in their system. There's something in their environment where it's really easy or too easy for somebody to go in and, and create mass chaos or, you know, create a lot of cleanup for somebody. It's hard to find those proactively, but you'll come across them. You just can't, you can't ignore them. You can't say, well, the root of this problem was that Jason wasn't paying attention and he shouldn't have had access to that system anyway. And so let's change that or let, let him go. Well, that, that really didn't improve anything because, you know, there's, there's still something within the system that allows that mistake to be made. And that's what we want to try to identify and improve. Yeah. That's still effectively blame. You're still blaming that individual and restricting their access. It's just a form of punishment. I don't know that it makes anything better. Absolutely. It's so counter to all of the DevOps principles that we are, you know, adopting and pushing out there is we want to empower more people. We want to, we want to make it so that whoever um, is on call or whoever is made aware of an issue that they can go in and they can take care of that issue right away, you know, because um, the more people we have empowered, the, the quicker we can recover from problems. We know that problems are going to come up in, in complex systems. And so it's really no longer a matter of trying to avoid problems. It's, it's a matter of trying to detect those problems and repair them quickly. And if you've just stripped somebody of the ability to go in and, and remediate and, and resolve a problem on their own, and you've um, reduced the number of people who can actually fix that problem down to a handful of people, well, then you've just created... Uh, a much bigger problem. You've created a bottleneck because there's only so many people who can actually fix this problem. And maybe it's after hours or it's on a holiday or a weekend or something. And the person who is on call, they should have been able to fix this problem, but you strip right. of that ability. Yeah. This mentality, this idea of a just enough administration of being able, if you only have a super user account, so you restrict how many people have it because you call that security, you're back to the, to, you know, people can't fix problems. So they're not competent. Being able to granularize security sufficiently so that you only give the privileges that are necessary. I think that's much more effective if a bit more work. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting set of problems. Uh, Jason, for folks who are listening are going, I've got to, I've got to get this culture going in my organization. Do you have strategies? How do you get started? Well, for me, um, I, I like to encourage open collaboration. Uh, we talked at the beginning of the show about, uh, chat ops and using group chat to, to sort of, um, make it so that more people are aware of what's going on. So I, I think for me, you know, when you're talking about DevOps and that whole, that whole thing there, um, it's a, it's simply just a, a culture of automation, measurement and sharing. That's sort of the, the most popular acronym to, to define DevOps. But I think once you put a focus on being more collaborative and being able to have insight into conversations that are going on, not only within your team, but maybe beyond your team, uh, that's when the empathy starts to open up and people start to feel for the work that gets done outside of their own roles and responsibilities. And then that opens up more communication and, and then, you know, looking for ways to empower more people and, and look for ways to like automate some of our work and, and, and have better visibility on what's going on with the measurements and the metrics that we're doing. 
And so for me, the easiest place to start is, is uh, using some sort of group chat tool. Right. And not because we like to chat, no. but I like presenting it as idea of you want more visibility into this, you know, sort of mysterious organization. And let's face it, IT is mostly mysterious. Yeah. Come watch. Exactly. Watch how we have these conversations. You may not understand everything that's going on. I mean, I think it's a challenge for outsiders to not step on the etiquette of chat ops, too. Yeah. To, to sort of get a feel for what's going on. But that can be done. And that's actually, I'd rather work on that problem than still be fighting the old one. Yeah. No, it's exactly true. And, and I mean, there's always going to be challenges no matter what types of change you put, you know, you want to put in place. And when it comes to the being more collaborative piece and, and open, uh, especially for large companies, you know, they, they're not necessarily comfortable with using services like Slack and HipChat because those conversations are not hosted on-prem. They're not totally comfortable with, you know, intellectual property and conversations and that type of stuff being hosted on somebody else's uh, servers, which I get. And that's a problem that they, uh, it's a concern that they have to address. Um, but, and then, and then the other thing is that there's a lot of companies out there who today use services like, um, Microsoft's link, you know, which is just like uh, Skype for business type of thing, yep. uh, or they're using some other internal group chat tool. And, and, and don't get me wrong. It's great to be able to have those conversations, but if you are, um, only having one-on-one conversations or, or maybe, um, very short, brief group conversations that aren't then retrievable and searchable later, then all you're doing is really just siloing off all your conversations. And that's a big sort of anti-pattern and something that we try to move away from for anybody who's trying to adopt these new principles of DevOps and change their culture. Um, We want to move away from siloing and black boxing conversations. So Richard, if you and I are having, you know, a conversation about something um, rather than that being in an instant message over Gchat or Skype or whatever the case is, that needs to be out in an area where everybody can be a part of that conversation. Because even though in my subconscious, I think, well, Richard has the answer to my question. Uh, and you, you know, you're, you're happy to, to give me that answer. Um, I forgot or I failed to realize that that question I have and your answer is probably valuable to a large group of people. And rather than you happen to answer the same question to 10 people, you can just put that out into, or you and I can have that conversation in an open space and everybody's got the same context and everybody has the same awareness. And it's, it's hard for us because we've, we've gotten used to using email uh, and using instant message um, to have conversations, but every one of those conversations are completely black boxed. And um, that's, that's the big kind of hurdle for a lot of companies is to just break out of this habit of having these isolated individual uh, black box conversations. Yeah, having conversations that are capturable. I mean, this is this creates institutional knowledge. This actually makes the organization smarter. Uh, it's just a challenge of you've got to spend some time on some tooling to actually put it there and to get people to look. You know, before you ask the question again, maybe search the log, see if it's already been answered. Yep. It's worthwhile. Yeah. Hey, Jason, so much fun to talk to you about this. It's uh, it's an interesting challenge, and I think it's a really good starting point on uh, an IT-driven DevOps culture to really go after that blameless postmodern mindset and and being able to do some some root cause analysis and and get better over time. Yeah, it's you know it's not easy. Uh, the concepts make sense. I think it, it, you know once you stop and think about them. But getting into your your own company and getting into your own teams and and trying to uh, make these types of improvements 
it's it's not easy. Uh, it's uh, certainly small, uh, easier for smaller companies and startups. But the larger the company, it's hard to do. But you know, it's not impossible. We've seen large companies out there: um, HP, Capital One, Target. Um, there's all kinds of large organizations that have who have figured out how to do this stuff, and they're seeing um, huge results, uh, Im- impressive results that are you know. Um, so fun to, to kind of read about or listen to. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's really neat stuff. I love, I love to talk about this. Yeah, easy to do in a small organization too. When it's the four of you sitting around the table going, what the hell happened? It's, you're fine. It's somewhere in the middle there. You're too small that it's, you know, friends working together purely, but you're not so big that you've gone through this arduous process. You know, you had culture people to drive all that. You've got to choose to do this for yourself. I think that's a, a challenging place to get into it. Absolutely. And I, I feel that, you know, the, the large companies that have figured it out, the ones who are starting to make progress, I would say, are the ones who have realized, you know, they've, they've done their due diligence. They've read up on the whole DevOps thing. They've even looked into the blameless culture and all that kind of stuff. And they, like a lot of us, have realized, well, this is, this is really, if I need to distill this down into something that senior management can understand, this is really just the concept of being a learning organization and having a high focus on continuous improvement. Absolutely. All that other stuff, they're just byproducts. You know, if we're talking about continuous delivery, if we're talking about reducing your mean time to repair by using things like Victor Ops or whatever, like those, those things will come if you focus on continuously improving everything that you do um, throughout the day and not just, you know, feeling like, well, the way we do it is the way it's always been done and we're not going to change that. <laughs> well, it, it, and you think you bring up the very valid point is as that culture shifts and you get new processes, the tools naturally emerge. Yep. You, you, then you know you need one. Yep. Jason Han, thanks for so much for coming on the show. Richard, it's been a pleasure. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. Mm-hmm.